Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that Paul confirms the Genesis account as truth. Today, Pastor Murphy will show us three witnesses that confirm that Genesis is a historical book. All right, turn your Bibles with me, please, to the Book of Romans. Chapter 5, we are going to read again from verse 12 of this chapter. We started to deal with the subject um, last Sunday night and we didn't get to complete it, so we are going to be dealing substantially with the same subject. I, I might have to rehash some of the material. And I hope you have the patience to endure um, the fact I need to do that. Otherwise, I think you'll lose the continuity of what we began to deal with last week. I want to read from Romans verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, have abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment that was by one to condemnation, um, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reign by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more bound, that as sin have reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life. By Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, into your hand we commit your word and we commit this congregation. We come here to find what your word has to say to us. Our task and our responsibility is very simple. Where God speaks truth to our hearts, we ought to obey that truth, believe that truth, and practice that truth. And tonight, I pray that as we examine this passage of Scripture again, 
that you might use it to enlighten the believer and edify and enrich the believer's life. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who is the great teacher, uh, the one that comes alongside, the one that is there to enlighten us, the one that will guide us into all truth, we pray that he might take the word of God and open it to us so that we can comprehend what is there. Gird up the loins of our minds as we proceed this evening and help us to focus on your word so that we can grasp what you would have us to learn this evening. I pray for your help. I pray for your mercy. I pray for your grace. I pray for your enablement. I pray for your giving me the ability to communicate your truth so that people can comprehend and understand it. And I pray that as a result of all that we've done here this evening, when we come to a conclusion, I pray, Lord, that the glory, the praise, the honor, the majesty would be bound to use your name and towards the Son, your Son's name, that you would be glorified and that your Son would be glorified and that your word would be so exalted and uplifted that your people would have a deeper appreciation for your word. We look to you and we ask for these mercies as we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Romans chapter 5, I've mentioned before that we've come to what you call the watershed chapter in the book of Romans. Everything that Paul has written previous to this chapter is leading up to this chapter. Everything that Paul will write after this chapter is leading away from this chapter to the greater truth. So this is the watershed chapter of the book of Romans. This is why when you come to a passage of scripture like this, it is such a rich vein of, of uh, truth that we got to make sure that we mine it patiently and thoughtfully. One of the worst things we can do when we come to a passage of scripture like this is to uh, move and race to it so rapidly that we never sit down to enjoy the great nuggets of truth that we find in this passage. So I'm saying to you that it's required of us that we pay some special attention to what we have here in the book of uh, Romans chapter 5. If we run through a passage of scripture like this, it means that our lives is going to be much poorer. If we give some attention to this passage of scripture, it means that God is going to enlighten our understanding about his truth. God will edify our spirits and God is going to enrich our lives so that we can better appreciate what God has given to us in his word. Now, it needs to be repeated that when we come to chapter 5 in the section I read to you from verse number 12, that the Apostle Paul raises five crucial issues. You go through this chapter and you'll see that there are five things that Paul really raises. The first one I mentioned and I dealt with before is that Paul talks about the reality of sin. I don't have to debate with you this evening and I am not going to do that this evening, but the modern man has no conception of sin any longer. The church is the only uh, pillar of truth that now speaks about sin. The, the, the man in the world and the man in society talks about mistakes. He talks about foibles. He talks about idiosyncrasies. Uh, he talks about inadequacies. Inadequate, but he never, uses, he never uses the word sin. Because sin is not part of the human vocabulary. It is gone. And that is why when we come to a passage of scripture like this, we must reassert that there is such a thing as real sin. 
And you cannot read Romans chapter 5 without understanding that Paul is emphasizing that sin is a reality. And he talks about that in great detail and we, we dealt with that at some other point in time. The second thing that Paul raises in this chapter flows from the first matter of the reality of sin and that is the universality of death. That death passed upon all men. And the grim reaper still stalks the world and everywhere he runs and everywhere he goes, he leaves a trail of death. There is still this universal problem of death that we must face. And everywhere we go, you find death. You can run from Antigua and go to Barbados, death will meet you there. You can leave Barbados and go to the States, even there death will meet you. And you can leave those places and go into your private room, into your study, and death will meet you there. He's coming, and it's a reality, and it's something that is completely universal. The Apostle Paul deals with that, and I dealt with that in one of the sermons. The third thing that Paul talks about here is the historicity of the book of Genesis. And we started dealing with that last week, and I want to continue dealing with that tonight. But that's what Paul deals with in this book of Genesis. He treats Adam... Not as a myth, not as a theory. He treats Adam as not as a fable. He treats Adam as a real person, a historical person in time and space. And he makes it very, very clear that Adam is linked with Christ. If Adam is not a historical person, so neither is Christ. To surrender the book of Genesis is to surrender the whole doctrine of salvation. Because the two of them are intertwined. And Paul would deal with that. Uh, later on in the chapter. In verses 19 to, uh, 15 to 19, Paul deals with the, fourth, the, uh, the fifth is crucial issue, and that has to do with the sufficiency of Christ. And what the Apostle Paul does in that section is that Paul shows you very clearly that Christ is the foil for everything that Adam did. Whatever Adam did, Christ was able to undo. He is the antidote to the problem of sin and death. And Paul will explain that in great detail in that section. And then finally, the fifth thing that Paul raises in this chapter has to do with what I call the utility of the law. And when I speak of the utility of the law, the word utility has to do with the use of the law, the purpose of the law. And the Apostle Paul will deal with this fairly extensively, pointing out to the Jews that the law could not bring the righteousness that he needs uh, and that righteousness comes only through Christ. Now, I know when you come to a chapter like this, and the Apostle Paul seems to have tagged on that last part of it, uh, the law. You, you, he's, he's, it's like he, he's, he's dealing with a topic, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, bam, he puts the law in there. He said, but why would he put the law there? Because he understands the Jewish problem. The Jews understood that if a man was going to be right before God, he needed something called righteousness. And the way the Jews went about to get righteousness is through the law. It's called works righteousness. And Paul points out there's another righteousness that you can't work for. You accept as a free gift. It comes through Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul talks about the sufficiency of Christ. And he talks so much about the utility of the law. Now, having done that uh, this evening, I haven't done that before. I want now to pick up again about this whole matter of the historicity of the book of Genesis. I pointed out to you last time we were in this book that the war against Genesis, the book of Genesis has been long, it has been brutal, and it has been persistent. 
This is one of the great books of the Bible that is under severe attack like no other book in the Bible. No other part of God's word has faced such mercilessly, persistently uh, irreverent attacks as the book of Genesis. And the enemies of this book are a broad brood of saboteurs. They are working ceaselessly to undermine the book of Genesis. And the reason they're trying to do that, by the way, that if you can do away with the first three chapters of Genesis, you can discredit the scriptures. You can uh, deny the existence of God. And then, of course, you can destroy the church. And that is why it is such a lethal attack geared to this particular book of the book of Genesis. It's enlightening, by the way, uh, how Paul put it in the book of Romans chapter 1 and, and verse 21. When he was talking about people who turn away from the creation story, the book of Genesis. The Apostle Paul, uh, he says in, in Romans chapter 1, 22, he says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And uh, that language that is used there, uh, the Greek language, by the way, the word professing, the word plasco. And the word means to affirm, to allege, to profess. So here are a band of people who claim that there is no God. And Paul says they themselves have made that assertion. See? They are egotists and egomaniacs. So the intelligentsia of our time who believe they're smarter than God and smarter than scripture. And so they assert, Paul is saying, and profess that there's no God. But then the apostle Paul says that they became fools. If you check up that word in the Greek language, the word moron. See? Sounds like an insult. Sounds like an insult to me. I would like to say to anyone who have atheistic leanings, I don't know if you know this, but before you were conceived, God knew your name. Okay. I repeat, if you are leaning to be an atheist and you're an atheist, I want to say long before your mother even had a thought about you, God had your name in the Bible. It's called fool. See? Fool, that's your name. See? So God named you a long time before you were even conceived or born. Because the Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I think for this reason, the Apostle Paul spends so much time in this section trying to emphasize the whole role that Adam played in the demise of humanity and how God had to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to cancel out and neutralize everything that Adam did. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing in this section the historicity of the, ch the chapter, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3. Now I pointed out to you last time we were here that there are several reasons why this section is attacked uh, by the so-called pseudoscientists who hold to the evolutionary theory. Uh, there are several things that go through. The, they, they, they go into the, the book of Genesis and they comb it with like a fine intellectual comb trying to find everything that is at variance with the evolutionary theory. And I pointed out to you that there were several things that they draw attention to in this book to try to um, disparage the book and of course in order to destroy, destroy the credibility of the Bible. I mentioned that they reject the idea that there could be light before there was a sun. Now, the sun was created on the fourth day, but yet in Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, God said, let there be light. So they said, how could there be light when there was no sun? And I always smile when they forget that God is a great light. See? 
the stupidity of humanity is, is just staggering. See? But that's one of the, the big arguments. They could not be light before the sun was created. The sun was created on the fourth day. So how on the first day there was light? And if they would only go to the God of the Bible and understand who he is, they would understand that he can speak light into existence and doesn't leave the sun. He's that supreme and that great. The other thing we talked about is that they laugh at the six days of creation. They create all these great epochs, billions upon billions of years. I listen to television programs and I hear them talking about, speaking so precisely that this star is a billion of years. The truth of the matter, they ain't got one clue how old it is. But it sounds so, you know, the problem about it is this, as, as a, an adult person, a, a mature person, I laugh at those things. But the little kids listening to that, and it is so dynamic, and it's so picturesque. The effect of that, what they're trying to do is to brainwash the young minds. And if you're not alert uh, to the false teaching in this area, you can become susceptible to it. So they say that, number one, they couldn't be light. Before the sun came into existence on day four, but yet light came on day one. There cannot be six days of creation because it took a very long time for all these things to evolve. Fool, they didn't evolve. God said, let there be and there was. But it's more than that. They also denied there's any such thing as the fall. And that the fall brought death. And by the way, you cannot be a Christian and be an evolutionist. I repeat, you cannot be a Christian and an evolutionist. Because evolution teaches that there was death before sin. I hear people talking about Christian, what they call uh, theistic evolution. Have you ever heard that expression? That there's people in the church who believe that God created through the process of evolution. You cannot be a Christian and believe that. Impossible to believe that. Uh, but by the way, there are so many great writers... Uh, Christian writers, that I, if I call some of the names, who claim to be theistic evolutionists. Men that are respected in different fundamental circles as well. Uh, who claim that they are Christians, but yet they are evolutionists. The two cannot mesh. The two of them are contradictory. So they deny that uh, there is any such thing as the fall. They deny there is anything such thing as sin. And uh, they just say that everything that's happened is a result of chance and accident. And fortuitous events that took place, presto, everything happened today, and we got the world as it is. So this world is a cosmic accident, and everything just happened. There's no creator, there's no architect, there's no designer, there's no intelligent being. It just popped out, out of nowhere and just happened. And I'm not here tonight to mince words with anybody. I'm just saying to you tonight, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live. I don't care how much education you've got, how smart you think you are. If you believe that, you are just simply a nincompoop. See, that's what you are. Nothing less than a big old fool wrapped up in error. See, the Bible is very, very clear on this matter. Now, I pointed out thirdly last time. I think the reason why Christians are susceptible to embracing the evolutionary theory and the fact that the book of Genesis, the first five chapters are maybe myths or allegories is because I don't think they fully understand the ramifications of surrendering Genesis chapter 1 to 3. If you surrender chapter 1 to 3, I pointed out last night, you end up with a philosophy where life has no meaning, no purpose, and life has no destiny. 
Because if I'm not here by, by a creation of God, I'm not here by God's special creation, it means that I'm here by chance, by accident. Now, if I'm here by chance, by accident, tell me what's my purpose in life. Tell me what's my meaning in life. Tell me where am I going. And I think if you begin to understand the ramifications of that, you will be inclined with the Apostle Paul to hold to the historicity of the book of Genesis. Don't ever surrender it. And by the way, it is only those Christians who understand the ramifications of the book of surrender, the book of Genesis, that they are not at all bulldozed by scientists to embrace the evolutionary theory. They're able to take a stand for truth. Because they understand what surrender it means and what the ramifications of it means. I also pointed out to you last time that if it is true that um, we just happen, Genesis is just an allegory, it's just a myth just a legend and we're just the concoction of accidental cosmic atoms that came together and formed us and there's no meaning and there's no purpose can you blame me then for living for my pleasures I cannot blame any unsaved man for living pursuing pleasure if he believes that Genesis 1 to 3 is, is false because at least let me enjoy myself while I can if when I die, it's just a blank and I don't exist and I have no personality, there's no God whatsoever. Why, why rob me of little pleasure? See? And that's why if you don't understand this age, because to, to me it is madness that that's all people live for. Going from one party to another, one woman to another, one pleasure. And you try to, but what? This, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to you because you have a biblical philosophy of life. But a man that doesn't have that, his life has no meaning, no purpose. And he has made the pursuit of pleasure the ultimate son and bonum that he's going after in life. And I also said to you, one of the other ramifications is if there is no meaning and no purpose and no destiny, uh, what encourages me to treat you uh, or use my resources to help you? Why not just use all my resources upon myself? Because after all, you're going to be nothing, I'm going to be nothing, so why waste my resources on you? In other words, if you take and embrace the evolutionary theory and get rid of the book Genesis chapter 1 to 3, you end up with a situation where humanity has become inhumane. And people begin to do some crazy stuff that you and I can never comprehend. Uh, if you read the, the, the news sometimes and you read some of the things that are happening, you're wondering how, how can a man do this? A man going to a theater, takes a gun and blasts and kills, what, 20 people? You say, but why would he do that? Why would a mother drive a vehicle into a, 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 a river uh, to get rid of her children because she is interfering her affair with the man she wants to marry? Why would she do that? See? Makes no sense. But again, if you understand that his life doesn't have any meaning, his life doesn't have any purpose, my life doesn't have any purpose, you can understand then why people begin to act as though life has no meaning and no purpose whatsoever. So the distinction between what is real and what is actually happening uh, there's a lostness between that. And people now begin to act out this philosophy and then the government throws their hands up in the air and says, but why is this happening? Why is this happening? And then they call in the psychologists to try to discover why it's happening. See? And of course, they have no answers unless they go back to Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3. The fourth thing I pointed out to you, uh, fifth thing I pointed out to you last time, is that the reason why we need the book of Genesis is because it answers all the basic fundamental questions of life. Every one of us sitting right here have got to ask certain basic questions about life. 
You've got to ask the question, for example, why am I here? You've got to have an answer to that. You can't live without having an answer to that with any meaning. You've got to have the, the question, of course, how did I get here? You've got to answer the question of where am I going? You've got to ask the question, of how, how did man get in the state he's in? How do you explain the world as it is? And then the other question we must all ask is, okay, how is the problem solved? Is there an answer to the problem? And I showed you very clearly when you go to the book of Genesis chapter 1 to 3, all of those basic fundamental questions are answered by God. See? How did I get here? You're a special creation of God. Why am I here? I'm here to glorify God. Who am I? I'm a personal being made in the image of God. I'm a tripart being, body, soul, and spirit. Next question, how did man get into the condition that he's in? Man got into the condition because he rebelled against God. See? And then the other question, how is the problem going to be solved? Problem will be solved because God is sending the seed of the woman that will bruise the serpent head and solve the whole problem. Genesis is a marvelous book. And it answers all the fundamental questions that we need to ask as believers. Now having said all of that, I now want to go to the book of Romans chapter 5. And I want to point out to you that the Apostle Paul is arguing for the historicity of Genesis. And I want to call three, three witnesses tonight that confirm that Genesis is a historical book. And that the story of Adam and Eve and the fall are historical events. They actually took place. They're not myths. They're not legends. They're not caricatures. They're not poppycock nonsense these are things that actually really actually happen in time space in history i'll call the witnesses to the stand shortly now if you are familiar with the book of deuteronomy uh, you know that in the book of deuteronomy the bible says in deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 that when it comes to the matter of forensic evidence in the law courts, if you want to verify that something actually did happen, you must have at least a minimum of two or three witnesses. No matter under the Old Testament economy could have been settled legally unless there were at least two or three witnesses. So when I call to the stand people that to witness to the historicity of the book of Genesis, uh, if you're following the biblical model, I have no choice but to present at least three Credible witnesses to verify that the book of Genesis is authentic and real. And I will take the time tonight to make that assertion that I do have three witnesses. The first witness, of course, I want to draw your attention to is what we have here, the Apostle Paul in this section. If you read uh, chapter 5 and the passage from verse number 12 on to the end, you'll find that Paul points out eight facts about the book of Genesis. Eight facts. In verse number 14, the apostle Paul named the first man. He said Adam was the first man. Read the book of Genesis, it's very, very clear that the Bible teaches that Adam was the first man. The apostle Paul is going to present a case in reference to the book of uh, Genesis to confirm that it is an authentic book and these are historical characters. In verse number 12, Paul says that Adam sinned. Again, I don't have to remind you in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 to 3, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. In verse number 12b, 
Uh, and Paul says in this passage that Adam's sin brought death. Again, go back to Genesis. Third thing that Paul points out. He wants to be so meticulous and so consistent. Because Paul's point is that what took place in the book of Genesis actually was a real historical event. So Paul has to align his teaching with what you find in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, verse C, uh, verse C Paul points out that Adam's sin was imputed to us. And the Bible makes it quite clear that when Adam sinned, we inherited a sinful nature from Adam. Every single person that followed Adam had this sinful nature. And by the way, it doesn't take you very long in the book of Genesis to show you what that sinful nature means. Because after Adam sinned, he has two sons. One is called Cain and Abel. Now imagine that. You just got mommy and daddy and you got two boys. You own the whole world. But yet there's rivalry. And you wonder, but did that not come with the same womb? You got kids like that? Man, I got three boys and three of them as, as, as different as light from day. Same father, same mom. And that's what the Bible teaches, that you inherit a sin. So exactly after the first sin, you've got this rivalry between because God commends one, the other one gets jealous and decides the way to get rid of the problem is to get rid of my brother. But wait a minute, if you get rid of your brother, you don't have anybody else with you other than your mom and your dad. Who are you going to play with? The stupidity of sin. And like the guy who cuts the limb and he's sitting on and that's what sin does. And that gives you an idea of what that meant in terms of our sinful nature. That inherited nature. You, you, you wait, maybe five or six generations down the line, you can see it. No, immediately after Adam's sin, it works out in the life of his children. And you don't go very long in the Bible before you find bigamy. Where did that come from? See? And then it doesn't take you long before you come to drunkenness. And then you come to that stage where the Bible says every imagination of man's heart was evil continued. In a short space of time, the world's in chaos. The book of Genesis and the book of Paul aligns with that. As a result of Adam's sin, it was imputed to us. We all inherited a sinful nature. So that's the, the fourth thing that Paul talks about. In verse 15, Paul says that Adam's sin was an offense to God. And that's what sin is. Sin is something that we offend God with because we violate and we transgress. We go beyond a commandment. We go beyond what God has stated. When a man sins, it means that we deliberately make a choice to go against what God has ruled. That's why sin is a moral matter. It's not an accident. It involves rebellion. And Paul points it out in verse number 50. He calls it an offense to God. And then when you come down to verse number uh, 16, Paul says that Adam's sin brought judgment on all. And we all know that because of Adam's sin, we all come under the judgment of God because we also inherit a sinful nature. And it's very clear as well that when God began to deal with Adam after sin, God judged Adam and judged Eve. He said, you're no longer going to enjoy the goodness that I have, you're going you're gonna to have to work hard and sweat. And you're going to eat bread by the sweat of your brow. You see? Before that, there was nothing that Adam had to do other than take care of. But now there's thistles and grass and the whole thing. It's the judgment of God. Not only on Adam, but also on planet Earth. 
Read the book of Romans chapter 8. The whole creation groans. It comes under the judgment of God. And the apostle Paul is drawing that out again. And then the seventh thing that Paul says in verse number 16b. He said it brought condemnation. And we all know that it's more than just physical death. When Adam died. He came under the judgment of God. And it means that we will suffer eternal death at some point in time. So we, we, we suffered condemnation. And then the last thing that Paul talks about in verse number 19. Is, he said that the, the nature of Adam's disobedience. He calls it disobedience. The last passage meeting we had. A question was asked. And here was the question. What was the first sin? What was the first sin? And everybody uh, agreed that it was hubris. That's the word that they use. Nice fancy word. But all it means is pride. That's all it means is pride. And true, that's the first sin. The first sin was created. In, it, was, it took place in heaven when Satan, um, out of his pride and wanting to be like God, and ascend to the throne of God. You, you find he's the first rasta. Five eyes. I will be this. I will be that. I and I, I will be that. <laughs> first rasta. But five different times, um, he said he wanted to be like God and, and, and so on. And he will dethrone God and sit in this, you know, on his throne. And, and, and God, it was pride. And read the book of Ezekiel and the book of, uh, and the book of uh, Isaiah. He talks about the anointed carb that you were the embodiment of beauty until iniquity was found in you. Pride was found in you. That's the first sin. That's the first sin of the devil. But the first sin of man is not pride. It's disobedience. It's disobedience. And that's why Paul talks in this particular passage. He doesn't talk about Adam's pride. He talks about Adam's disobedience. He's sticking close to the Genesis record because the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that when we, when we go to Genesis chapter 1 to 3, Paul wants you to know it's a historical document. What took place was a historical event. And Paul is going point by point, nine times, he makes a reference to that incident in the book of Genesis. Not accident, not coincidental. It's a deliberate act on Paul's part to confirm the historicity of the book of Genesis. What is uh, also um, interesting that when you come to um, the Paul's writings, you also find that this is not the first time the Apostle Paul affirms the historicity of Genesis. If you look with me for just a moment at Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22, you'll find that the Apostle Paul again confirms this historical fact about Adam in the book of Genesis. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22, Paul says, for in Adam all died. So not only here in the book of Romans, in his other epistles, the Apostle Paul asserts and affirms that the book of Genesis is a historical book. The Apostle Paul will not allow the church to dilly-dally and surrender the, the, the book of Genesis. Because Paul knows the full consequences, and I'll talk to that and we come to a close. What are the consequences of turning away from the book of Genesis and turning our backs on the first three chapters? So in Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22, the Paul makes the same assertion. If you look also at Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, he, he says that Adam was the first man in that passage. Again, he's asserting Adam was a historical person. So he got it in Romans, but it's not a Freudian slip that he put in Romans. He also have it in the book of Corinthians because what Paul is discussing about the resurrection, etc., 
And then we find another time that Paul makes a reference to the historicity of, of, of Adam and Eve and uh, the Genesis story. You find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Where Paul says, Adam was first formed. Again, this is an assertion. You know, you, you wonder why Paul makes those kind of statements. In the providence of God, God knew that the great attack in the end times would be this great book. He, he planned way ahead of time. That this doctrine, this truth about the history of Adam would be confirmed in scripture again and again. And we can't escape the reality that we're dealing with history. He anticipated what would happen. And so you find in Timothy chapter 2 verse 13, he says Adam was the first man formed. Again, where do you get that from? Paul, where do you get it from? Well, it's in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. This is Paul's conviction that this book is true. And then the other reference to, um, that Paul gives is found in the first Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 when he says Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived first. How did you know that, Paul? See? Well, Paul was privy to the same knowledge that you have. Paul knew Genesis chapter 1 to 3 and he would have had the Jewish translation of the Bible. He would have had that. So Paul would have known that that is what Genesis said and that's why Paul can say that Eve was deceived but not Adam. Again, you cannot read Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and think it's a mere coincidence that Paul will bring these things into the scriptures. He's witnessing to the truth of the historicity of the book of Genesis. Now I want to call witness number two to the stand for just a moment. And what an incredible witness this is, because it is what we have here is something that is purely coincidental. And there's no collusion between Paul and this person. Could never be. No collusion. See, let me show you another passage of scripture that might shock you. Another witness to the Genesis story. Look at Jude chapter. Four. Uh, there's only one chapter. Jude verse 14. You know, I don't think Jude would have understood exactly what his affirmation means in this time in which we live, where the book of Genesis is under such severe attack. I don't think Jude could ever conceive that the witness of his book would support the, the, the Genesis account. But look what he says in Jude verse 14. And Enoch. Also, the what? The seven from who? There is it again. See? Now, if Adam was not a historical person, how could Enoch be the seven from him? You can get children from a myth. You can get babies from a myth, from a legend, from folklore. But no, it's, a, it's just coincidentally, he's dealing with these false prophets. And he's talking about the ungodliness that uh, Enoch, being a prophet, speaks about God judging the ungodly with their ungodly ways. And just coincidentally, he just mentions Enoch. Why did I say Enoch and leave nothing out? Enoch, the seventh from Adam. See? Where do you get that from? Go back to the book of Genesis and you'll see that Enoch is the seventh from Adam. See? How did he know that, Jude? See? Because he was exposed to the same information you had. He knew the book of Genesis. So indirectly, coincidentally, by no major plan on his own, not understanding the times in which we live. Again, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the omniscience of God. He knew that we would need support for a time like this. 
And therefore, he guides Jude in his writing, and Jude is about to put down Enoch, and God said, no, the seventh from Adam, Enoch. Because God knows this will be the attack that we face today, see? That's the second witness that we call your attention to. The Apostle Paul in Romans, in Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, and Jude in Jude uh, 14. But of all the witnesses that authenticate the book of Genesis, and of all the witnesses that vindicate Genesis chapter 1 to 3, there is no greater witness than this last one. And you find that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. And of course, Matthew is the gospel, and the gospel is the story, the glad tidings, the good news about Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 to 5, we read these words. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And then he goes on and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be twain and one. Where do you find that, sir? Genesis chapter 2. Who is the one that bears witness to this great book? It is none other than God's son, Jesus Christ. The supreme witness. And so here we have in this chapter that Christ affirms the historicity of those events. That God in the beginning made male and female. And that God created marriage. And even the specific words that God uttered are repeated here by Matthew. But look also in Mark chapter 10. And verse number 6. In Mark chapter 10, verse number 6. Verse 5 says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them what? Male and female. Where did he get that from? Again, the book of Genesis. My point is this. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one of impeccable character, the God-man, if he witnesses to the book of Genesis and says this is what actually literally occurred, it was a historical event, it could only be an ignoramus that would stand up and say that it didn't happen. So we have the classic witness and testimony of Jesus Christ himself bearing witness to the book of Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us the consequences of rejecting the Genesis account. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.